Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jim Holmes. Based in Oregon, Jim is an executive consultant with Pillar Technology, a high-tech consulting company, and he's also the owner and principal at Guidepost Systems. He's had many roles in IT over his career, including managing teams and working with organizations from startups to very large enterprises. Jim's the author of the LeanPub book, The Leadership Journey, Practical Tips on Starting or Changing Your Leadership Journey. The book contains practical tips, stories, and exercises for developing your leadership skills based on Jim's experience in a lot of different areas of work, from the military to the Cub Scouts, and also includes uh, the Leadership 101 series from his blog. You can read Jim's blog at frazzleddad.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at a Jim Holmes, and you can contact him for consulting work at guidepostsystems.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jim's background and career, professional interests, his book, and a little bit about his experience uh, writing and self-publishing. So thank you, Jim, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks a bunch for having me. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people uh, a little bit about their origin story in, in life. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you made your way into the Air Force. <laughs> uh, sure. I grew up in rural California. I was born, I'm an old fart. I was born in 63. Um, and I am the living example that you can screw up a whole bunch and still come out, uh, pretty well. Uh, I went to bad California country schools. Uh, I liked fifth grade so much. I did it twice. Um, and, um, uh, I went into the air force because my senior, my junior and senior year in high school, I had friends that were years ahead of me because of being held back one year. Um, and I saw them going to college. They were changing majors. They didn't know what they wanted to do. We were broke farmers, so I didn't have a free ride. And I couldn't imagine going to school and incurring at that time an ungodly amount of debt, like, oh my God, $30,000 or something with not really knowing what to do. Um, my dad was a private pilot, and he'd had me up flying since I was probably four years old, and I loved airplanes. Um, I wore glasses. My eyesight isn't great, so I couldn't become a pilot. Also, that required college. So I went into the Air Force um, and ended up actually through a whole bunch of lucky circumstances getting to fly on E3 radar aircraft, and I ran computer systems relating to the radar systems. Um, and so here was this kind of ignorant California hillbilly kid getting to fly on big, neat planes and do a lot of really high tech stuff. Um, and got a whole bunch of really amazing leadership, um, schooling through the service. Uh, 11 years after I was in, I met a woman who was amazing, fell in love. She happened to be an officer. I was enlisted. That didn't work out so well, so I left the military um, and then kind of spent the next, oh, I don't know, 15 or so years following her around till she finished her career. And I took pretty much whatever oddball IT jobs I could get um, because we were living in places like kind of backwoods Germany. Um, we were in the DC area for a while while she was at the Pentagon. Um, so I just, I hit a bunch of different IT jobs from network management to uh, help desk work, um, did some software engineering, and then just gradually 
over time evolved into doing much more of a consulting type role. Um, so I've always been interested in testing and quality, even when I didn't really know what that was. I'm not the hardcore software engineer, but rather I'm more interested in kind of people communication, um, helping solve those difficulties. And um, kind of through that background, like you read off, I've I've done – kind of by accident, not by purpose, a lot of leadership roles um, from high school sports to I played a lot of years of very serious competitive volleyball, uh, coached some of those teams. I ran a I was a Cub Scout leader for a while. I helped um, run the Codemash conference, which some folks in IT may be familiar with. Um, Start out with 220 attendees. It's now like 2,500 attendees with a million dollar budget. Um, and got all of these really interesting hard knock experiences. Um, a lot of really good insights and lessons learned on um, leading teams. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Thanks for that. Um, on the on the subject of hard knock experiences, one of the things I was looking, one of the questions I was looking forward to asking you was about basic training. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so interested is that in, in, um, film, uh, you know, there's a, a basic training scenes are, you know, well known, uh, in the genre of, you know, war movies, but I don't think I've ever seen a movie with air force basic training. Um, and so I don't have any, I don't have any kind of stereotypes or images in my head about what Air Force basic training is like. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so Air Force training, at least in the U.S. Air Force, uh, is much different than what I've heard from um, friends that I've had who went through the Navy or the Army or God forbid, the, not God forbid, but I mean the Marines, which very extreme. Um so basic training by its very nature and its need is meant to really break you down and rebuild you um, to fit a military mold. And, and I don't mean this in a badly stereotypical way. Rather, they've got a very short time to impress upon you that um, things you do very well can lead to other people dying if you're not – taking care of things in, in a, in a good manner. Right. Um, and as with all basic trainings, this is not about making you a thoughtless, um, ant droid, right? Instead, it is getting you to understand to work under pressure, to work a little bit under sleep deprivation. Um, but think and kind of fall into a successful direction, right? So, you're under pressure. You have to make a snap decision. Part of what basic training starts is getting you into a pattern of falling into success. Um, so, yeah, there was plenty of yelling and um, a lot of discipline. Nowhere near as harsh as, you know, what I've heard uh, friends who were Marines talk about. Um, uh, thinking discipline and learning to deal with pressure. Um, yeah, that, uh, I don't know if that gives you no, yeah, a good enough answer. It does. Thanks very much for that. Um, it's interesting. The, um, 
part you're about thinking is, I think, something that a lot of people um, don't know is so important in military training. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm not at all speaking from personal experience, but um, I once, just from anecdotal experience, I once knew a guy who was um, going into training for the Australian SAS. Um, and one of the challenges that was at least rumored that you would have to face was that you would have to walk across the desert for two days and then sit down and write an essay. Um, and, and what they were testing was not, not, not mere endurance, but your ability to stay focused even when your body is you know, depleted of resources. It, so particularly with special forces and oh my god you know the australian sas the british sas i actually knew a fellow who's a trooper in the sas uh, the brits um uh, the u.s special forces absolutely right they take and they push your body beyond the breaking point and yet you're still expected to i mean this is the requirement right you've got to be able to think in conditions that 99% of people don't understand. Um, and I don't want to draw a close parallel, but in a similar bent, um, I was responsible for running radar on this surveillance plane. And we were in um, the Middle East during the first uh, Iran-Iraq war, not the Iraq war, right? But this is years and years ago when Iran and Iraq were fighting. Um, and you know, we'd be up for hours and hours and hours, tremendously long missions, tired, you're worn out, you've been away from home for 30, 60 days or whatever. Um, stuff breaks. And if you can't think in that stressful environment with everything else behind it, the likelihood is that, you know, good people can die because you couldn't see what the bad people were doing. Um, and a lot of people just don't understand that, sure, there are spots in the military where they just want the mindless automaton, but that is not – that's a very, very rare thing. Um, the military needs smart, capable people who can think in extraordinary situations, and that's every branch, right? Um, and they're training – not just leadership training, but training for you as a soldier, you as a Marine, you as a sailor, whatever, um, really tries to hit that hard. And, you know, keep in context that I've now been out of the military since 1993, but, um, you know, there's some things that are kind of timeless. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about um, the specific job you had. I believe uh, you're, you were both operating uh, radar and one of the things as you just sort of invoked, we were um, responsible for fixing things if they broke while you're in the air uh, on an operation. And um, in particular, you wrote, I think, about an example in your book where um, you were, you know, 20 years old or something like that, and suddenly realized you were a single point of failure for um, at-risk ships in the, Persian, yeah. in the Persian Gulf, because one thing that in your, you know, giant radar plane, um, there, that's how technical I am in military matters, um, uh, you, you were looking for these little attack boats, I think, or maybe even big attack boats or any just threats to shipping and other kind right. of boats that were going through the Gulf. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. 20 years old, um, grew up working for my dad and my brother, uh, working in tomato and rice fields, worked in a hardware shop. And here I am in 
let's see, graduated in 82, in 1983, like 18 months after graduation from high school, uh, I'm the single point of failure on one of those aircraft. And I don't, maybe it's two years after graduation. Point being, when most kids are trying to figure out, um, you know, what am I doing for my next job? Uh, what am I, you know, oh, my God, I missed yet another class at college. Um, young kids in the military have huge responsibilities thrown on their shoulder um, and they succeed and they succeed. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing the the, the pressure um, in so many ways that, uh, I, as I understand it, you're asked to uh, live up to. Um, and you eventually um, went and got a computer science degree towards the end of your time in the Air Force, if I'm if I'm correct. Yeah, so it wasn't computer science. I can't overplay it. Uh, I stayed away from computer science because it required math. Um, and if you remember that thing about doing fifth grade twice, I've, I've never been great with math. I got a management information systems um, degree. And in no small part, I did that because the school that offered that had night school classes and they were eight-week semesters. And with me being on the road all the time, the eight-week terms actually worked really, really well. Um, so uh, – and it got me kind of also on the business side smart of things. So it, it wasn't the hardcore computer science. Did did plenty of programming, um, but subtly different there. Um, and so in your in your work, you've you've managed teams of, of programmers and testers uh, many, many times, I imagine. Um, what proportion would you say of the people that you've worked with had computer science, like formal four-year university computer science degrees? And, and I guess, has it changed over time? So that's interesting. Um, so let's see. I've been working on software teams since we can. I've never had anybody ask me this in, in this kind of context, so this is a good question. Um, let's see. Came back to the U.S. in 98 – and that's really when I started working with software teams. Um, <coughs> the first couple places I worked at were very heavy R&D. So there were a lot. I mean, uh, I worked around a couple. There was one awesome lady with a math doctorate that was doing all of this tremendous stuff. Um, so early on, it was very much skewed toward the CS side, but that was sort of the domain that I was in, if it makes sense. Also, one of the best guys that we had um, for solving problems, actually, I had a master's in philosophy and no software courses at all, right? Um, uh, you didn't want him anywhere near around like the release process because he was horribly disciplined, but he was amazing at communication. He was amazing at problem solving. Okay, so now let me think about for like the last 15 or so years. I want to say kind of half to two thirds. Um, I do think it's changing a bit because I think the industry is starting to realize that for the majority of software work, you don't need that hardcore CS degree. Um, you're not going to be, you know, how many people work on compilers? How many people are working on spectrographs that go on a satellite, right? So that hardcore engineering is 
a significant but a, a small piece of pie. You know, the majority is, can we write yet another business end-to-end solution? Can I stand up a shopping cart system, right? Um, and that's much more about communication with what the customer really needs, not rocket science. Um, and I think there's been a lot of realization in the industry that we can do things like get kids through some of the dev boot camps that are available, right? And so you go out and the better ones are an honest to God, not this eight week throw or four week throw you through something and then you can't really do much, right? Good dev boot camps will be three to four months. They'll have internships. Um, and those are skill based versus kind of that hardcore engineering knowledge base, if that makes sense. And I think that's a terrific thing because um, I, you know, decades later, I still can't imagine going through college and coming out with, you know, an $80,000, $120,000 debt um, and then having to go pay that off. Uh, and so little of that's directly applicable to what the vast majority of people are doing. And I'm not saying the vast majority of people are doing uninteresting work that doesn't require technical smarts. Rather, I'm talking about that hardcore computer science of, well, how are we going to optimize the bytecode instruction set? I don't know. I don't care. I haven't had to do something like that in 35 years, right? Long answer, but um, there you go. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Thanks very much. Um, it's uh, one of the themes of this podcast because so many of the people that I are the authors that I interview work in, and have had careers in the software industry. Um, one of the things that I like to ask them about, and it sort of organically, you know, got started was would, if you were starting out now, would you do a computer science degree again, or would you recommend it to someone? And, and of, of the people I've interviewed who've done full computer science degrees, I would say about half say, and they qualified and qualified in many of the ways you did, but they say, it's less and less of a requirement for having a successful career. Um, and, yeah. and, but, and one of the qualifications though, and you, you gestured in this direction is, but if there are certain areas you want to go into, then it actually still is pretty much mostly a requirement. Like as I've, as I've been told, if you want to work for sort of giant corporations like the Facebooks or the Googles or something like that, then it, then it, at least this is what I've been told that it, it, it's, often really helps you if you want to get into organizations like that to have done a full degree? Uh, I'd say yes and no. I mean, I know a number of folks that, that work for Facebook. I know some folks that work for Google. Um, and, uh, and I've got a lot of friends who are doing very deep technical things at Microsoft. Um, I'd say it's less about the organization and the role or the team or the product line or whatever that you're looking to do at that organization, right? Um, so, for example, I have a friend that I've known for years um, who is – he was one of the first people to deep, deep dive into the F-sharp programming language. And he knew the ins and outs of how F-sharp worked – and just extraordinary experience in the functional programming domain, which F-sharp is really – it's a functional language, but which you may or may not know of. Your listeners may not know of, but just – let's just say it's a very specialized language in a specialized domain. And this guy killed it. He was giving amazing talks. He was solving problems. Um, and the F-sharp team at Microsoft wouldn't talk to him because he didn't have a master's in computer science he had a master's in music, 
right? And it just killed me when he told me he got rejected because if there was anybody that they should have had on their team, it was this guy. He was passionate. He'd been using it, right? So um, there are still places where you do need those hardcore engineering degrees and not just to check a box, but um, – uh, used to, so this is the second place we've lived in Ashland. The first house that I was in, one <clears throat> we had amazing neighbors. One guy um, works with ion propulsion. He's a rocket scientist. He's even got a T-shirt. <laughs> and there was another guy who wrote – was on the team that wrote the software that was on the Rosetta um, probe that hit that comet some years ago. And I was like, holy crap these are smart people you know if you're in something like that yes you've got to have that hardcore right so and it's not like it's um how am i trying to say this let's say you just go into something like i did mis right and then later on you decide you know what i really want to get into nasa or i do want to be an honest to god rocket science then you can go get a master's or you can get that uh, that critical engineering stuff later. Um, and you may find out that your experience actually helps with that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that great answer. Um, I think a lot of people listening, um, are sometimes looking to make career changes and, you know, trying to decide what the right thing is to do. And all this kind of information is really, really useful uh, from the inside. Cause it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you can't get, uh, unless you hear from people who have, you know, a network and experience like, like you have. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, you worked for Northrop Grumman. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about big organizations. Um, and I wanted to ask you, just what was it like working for a, you know, giant defense company? <laughs> were you, did you feel like a cog in a wheel? Very much so. Um, they are uh, – so I'll tell the bad stuff first, then, then the good stuff. They are the reason that I left the very lucrative um, defense industry. Um, I spent more time getting chased down for tenths of an hour discrepancy on my time card than I did, you know, actually talking to customers and solving problems. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not all that much. Um, I think at the time they were 80 or 100,000 people strong uh, just in the U.S. And I was doing something at that time that I was actually very passionate about because um, it tied directly back to the job I did when I was in the military, which was flying on the radar aircraft. I had a stack literally feet high, maybe three feet high of technical manuals, and I was working on a project there that was going to digitize those and put them on laptops. And, you know, so this was 20 years ago and that was cutting edge. Woohoo. Um, so the work was really important, but the environment was just really tough. Um, and the way that the government works with defense contractors, um, I had an entire year where I didn't know if I was going to have a job two weeks, uh, two weeks out. Right. So for an entire year, Every two weeks, it was like, do I still have a job? I don't know. They haven't signed the contract yet. Oh, they signed the contract, but only for a month. And then at the end of the next month. So those big faceless organizations in the DOD space get to be very tough. 
Um, I got a lot of friends at Google, a lot of friends. I have some friends at Google. Um, that's another big organization. Facebook, I, I've got some pals that have worked there. Um, there's aspects of that, that that do tend to be faceless just because of the size. But the cultures are much different um, for both of those particular companies. Yes, yeah, speaking of size, that reminds me, um, I heard a story from a former colleague about how he, uh, in, in a previous career, had been uh, working on some kind of solution and he sort of had connections within a giant defense, American defense company. I don't know if which one it was. Um, and he proved that his solution would save the company $60 million a year. Um, and somehow managed to get a meeting with the CEO to tell him, I've got a solution that'll save you $60 million a year. And the CEO realizes after about two minutes in that, you know, there's only $60 million at stake. And he very politely says, um, this sounds like a very good idea. I'm not sure how you got this meeting. I don't deal with anything that's less than $100 million at stake. Um <laughs> And that, that I found that I mean I've worked in I've worked in areas where there's lots of money at stake, so I'm kind of familiar with that to some extent. But I think it's it's just to, to a normal person, sixty million dollars just sounds like a lot. But in those world, in that world, it's it's not. It, yeah, um, it, it, and not only the size of money. Uh, my wife worked in the Pentagon and, and handled budgeting um, for huge programs, small programs. Um, you know, it's not just, oh, it'll save us $60 million, but it's going to take us three years to get policies changed to be able to enact us, right? Um, it was all of that sort of stuff that just, even though I was doing something that was, at the time, I was working on a project that was going to benefit younger me, right? Kids that were doing my job that I'd suffered through. Um, it ground me down so much. Plus there were some other life changes, had kids. Um, I needed to be home cause my wife was traveling a lot while she was in the military. Um, yeah, it was just, it was time for a change. It took me a lot of years to get back to the same salary level. And I've never regretted that. Never regretted it. Um, you mentioned earlier the code mash conference. Um, I learned yeah. about that when I interviewed Corey Haynes a while ago. Oh, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience, about starting starting a conference and then, you know, running it. Um, How did you come I up don't, with the idea? Uh, so I didn't come up with the idea. Everybody, uh, oh, okay. So I was president of the board for CodeMash for eight or nine years. I kind of lost track. I guess eight. Um, uh, the idea came from five or so guys who were having dinner in Seattle. Uh, and I'm probably going to forget somebody here, but it was Brian Prince, Chris Judd, Jason Gilmore, um, Drew Robbins. Maybe it was just those four. Um, and all of those guys were from different domains. Chris was from Java. Jason Gilmore's PHP. Um, Drew was a Microsoft guy. And Brian at the time was just kind of this polyglot person. And the heartland of America. So like Michigan, Ohio, a little bit of Indiana, um, Kentucky, sort of that belt there had a tremendous tight developer community. Um, literally in 2006, 2007, you could hit a 
community organized conference, a code camp or day of .NET or something, you could hit one of those conferences in that corridor once a month, if not twice a month. It was extraordinary. And there was this pack of people that would just kind of go up and down, up and down, hitting all those conferences, attending, speaking, hanging out. Um, but they were all very segmented, like it was a .NET conference. Uh, oh, we've got a Ruby get out. Um, I helped put on a code camp in Cincinnati in Dayton, and we had like three Ruby sessions and people freaked out. So these guys are hanging out in Seattle and they come up. They're all good friends. And they say, why don't we just do a conference that starts from the beginning of bringing all of these disparate technologies together? Because we're all solving similar problems, but in different ways. And as a whole point was to really try to get some of the sniping between Ruby and .NET and Python or whatever. Right, Just leave that baggage outside. Come hang out, have a drink, have glass of water, whatever. Um and talk about how you solve problems because that's a harder point, right? Nobody's doing rocket science. They're all over at NASA. Um, so those folks, that core of four, grabbed me, grabbed uh, another guy, Josh Holmes, um, grabbed a couple other folks who'd been involved in organizing some of those smaller conferences and said, hey, we got this idea. Um, and so we kind of took off. Um, uh, I think I got nominated as president of the board because I was the phone call meeting Nazi. We were having long meetings and I finally said, nope, half hour. Here's this. I'm going to run it. Um, and so we got this tiny group, fewer than 10, um, to organize this conference. And the first year, it was about 220, 240 people, including the speakers. And that core that I talked about that would kind of go up and down the heartland, you know, that was probably 50 or 60 percent of the conference. So it was like this chance to come hang out with all your buddies finally and just, you know, not have to worry about running off to different sessions, but rather it was more about the discussions with sessions. Um and CodeMash, I think it's 12 years later now, still has this extraordinary um, culture that, frankly, I've yet to see duplicated at any conference I've been to. And, I, and I'm not trying to brag, but, you know, I've been I've been around the globe, spoken in a bunch of different places, been in a bunch of different places. CodeMash's culture is by far unique. And I, I firmly believe that it's because it started from that core of friends who were respectful, vehement about disagreeing, but wanting to, you know, discuss things, hug it out. Um, and that core kind of set the tone for the first couple of years. Other people had come in, see how that core was behaving. Um, then they became part of the core, right? And it just, <laughs> it just grew kind of like the Andromeda strain. Um, it also helped that we found this awesome venue in Sandusky, Ohio, which is on the shore of the Great Lake. Um, it's the first or second week in January. There's a lot of snow all over the place, but it's this indoor water park. It's this kind of Disney African theme. Um, the staff at the Kalahari Lodge where that runs has been central to the success of Code Mash. Um, uh, they've built new facilities. We filled those up. They've built newer facilities. We filled those up. <coughs> so that growth from year to year to year to year um, 
was just really extraordinary and, and, and totally due to that culture, totally due to that culture. What can I go learn from somebody who doesn't do anything in the same editor that I do or the same platform? Um, it, it's an extraordinary conference. Um, thanks for that great, great story. Um, and congratulations on the success of the conference. Um, uh, when you mentioned the facility, it reminded me that um, I interviewed Jason Gilmore like three years ago. And, uh, and and we talked about that. So that would have been when um, I would have first learned about CodeMesh. Um, uh, I'll put a link in the transcription so people can see that's that side of the story. But um, yeah, that's that was that was a great description. And it is it is really interesting how, you know, things that come from a core group of people who know each other and have a sort of clear mission, how those things can can grow over time. Um, you co-authored a book a few years ago called Windows Developer Power Tools that was published by O'Reilly. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that process. What was it like working with the publisher? <laughs> um, that was a crazy book. Um, so at the time, uh, I was actually – I had left Northrop Grumman um, – so I could be home with, uh, my daughter at the time who was two or three. Um, no, wait a minute. We just had our son. So I had a five-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, and I was at home taking care of them until my wife retired. My co-author, James Avery had already written one or two books for O'Reilly and had this, he and I were both tool nuts. Um, like, we would ping each other on IM. Hey, I found this awesome little utility that does like this one little thing or, you know, Hey, Oh, you're an idiot. Here's this much better thing that, you know, does this one thing way better. <laughs> um, and he had this idea of doing a book around all of these tools that people use on, uh, the windows platform when they're doing development. Um, you know, a lot of, there'd been writing about, Linux and Unix tools, but there hadn't really been sort of anything similar on the Windows platform. Uh, so um, I agreed to co-author. Uh, I was out of work at the time, so I took on kind of the, the majority of the editing work um, and knew that going in because it just it worked. James had the contacts. He had the history at O'Reilly. O'Reilly had a bunch of great people that were very engaging, very helpful. Um, I don't know if you looked much about at the book at all. It is basically 140 or 150 articles on individual tools. Um, the book turned out to be almost 1500 pages in length because James and I had a total lack of self-control wow. um, <laughs> when it came to kind of winnowing down to something manageable. Um, but we did it. Um, in a very lean program management fashion, basically, we do, the chapters were sort of thematic, like unit testing books, uh, software uh, books, tools, um, software quality tools, editors, uh, frameworks, yada, yada, right? Um, and we bit off, we organized those in kind of uh, risk flow versus chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, like the unit testing thing was going to be the biggest one. And there was a bunch of churn at the moment. So that's the one that we bit off first. 
Um, it was also very unique in that probably 70% of the articles, so 70% of those 140, 150 tools, the articles were actually authored by the tools creators. So the only tools that we didn't do any commercial tools, it was all free, public domain, open source, whatever, right? So we reached out to the tool creators, the tool owners, and asked if they'd write, you know, five, ten pages on something. Um, James and I saved some things that we were really passionate about uh, to write ourselves. And then um, it was this uh, huge exercise of herding cats. Um, you know, so we'd, we'd be working through those chapters um, based on that risk flow. Uh, we'd be sending out you know, all kinds of communications to people who were trying to get on tap, um, getting their first drafts in. I ended up doing a whole lot of the editing, again, because I had time. Um, and, you know, James did a lot of work, too. Uh, we just we partitioned things off. We had a great editor um, who was just this very stoic guy who got the crazy flow that we were doing. We, we seemed disorganized from the outside because things didn't make linear sense, but we were great at doing almost like this Kanban workflow of here's all this stuff that's got to happen. We'd throw it to this editor and within the space of about a month, maybe even two weeks, he was like, okay, I thought you guys were crazy. You're still crazy, but this is working. And he just jumped all in. Um, our senior editor, right? Not the copy editor. The senior editor was providing great feedback. So um, we got really nice help on kind of the process for production. Um, the thing with publishers is um, – you know, they actually don't do a whole lot of marketing of the book. And that was a surprise to me. Uh, you know, they had some things. They had some articles and they put things out at sites. And, and then they'd have our books at um, various conferences that they'd go to. Um, but, you know, I thought we'd be like on Oprah or something. You know, here's Jim's and James. And it just didn't work out that way. And I had no hard feelings about that. It was just I had hadn't thought any other way. Um, but we got just tremendous support from them. Um, their tooling was a little tough. We had this really cranky template that plugged into Word um, that was really frustrating to use. Uh, the style guide was a little difficult. So some of the mechanics were difficult. But, you know, again, this was 2006-ish, right? So different landscape. Um, uh, having done my book through lean or well now i'm on three books from with lean pub um it, you know i enjoy that process much more because i control everything the tool chain's really nice um having somebody have an editor for me was really cool especially when we got that guy who just jumped all in and man he made he made the book so much better um but you know you can find other editors right so um yeah, that's uh Yeah, thanks for sharing that that experience. Um uh I've always heard good things about um the people at O'Reilly and and Mad. I still got good friends there with them. 
Um, yeah, and and often when when people do get get critical, it's you know it's it's uh, pretty uh, process oriented stuff. You know, it's the tools that we didn't like, or you know, just something about you know the organization's way of doing things rather than you know obviously any individuals or anything like that. Yeah, um, the the marketing thing um, is 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 very interesting. Um, I was at a big publishers conference in New York a few years ago. Um, and there was a famous guy there who was giving a talk and it was like the one talk on self-publishing. Um, and he said, you know, he's got like a million followers on Twitter or something like that. And he's up there and he says, look, so I had this idea for a book and I took it to my publisher and the publisher said, great, how are you going to use your platform to market the book? And he said, well, what are you going to do? And they said, well, what are you going to do? And then he said, that's the last time I'm going to publish a book. I believe he said something along the lines of that's the last time I'm going to give a book to a publisher because they can, of course, they can help you with production and stuff like that. But uh, if they're, if they're just going to, if they're not going to do any of the marketing, you know, you're, you're self something anyway, um, you know, in addition to the writing uh, and, you know, why, why give up, all these rights and all these freedoms and like literal money um, when the money that's going to be made is going to come from the marketing effort that, that you're personally going to do. Um, on you, the you said you talked to Jason Gilmore yeah. um, and he at CodeMash for probably four years, if not longer, we had him do a half day workshop on self-publishing. And, I mean, he's just he's brilliant at it. He's got this great formula, this process, um, and he's exact, you know, echoes exactly what you just said. Right. Why do I want to give all this up when I end up doing all the work and now I can do it better? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're reminding me of that interview from a, from a while ago. One thing, too, is that Jason had some uh, insiders experience um, at publishing companies. Yeah. And sort of knew about the like the dollars and cents that people are really making and stuff like that. And now that was a very that was a very instructive talk for me um, uh, regarding uh, regarding your book um, on the subject of leadership. I gathered from stuff I read that you're critical of the way you see corporations grooming future leaders. Um, is that is that true or? Um. So let me slightly rephrase that. I'm critical of the way that they don't groom. I don't think – and this isn't just the IT. I mean this is epidemic in IT in software where we just do this atrocious job of mentoring and growing people. Um, but my experience um, across – you know, I've seen a moderate amount of different domains, right? Defense, um, <coughs> have some exposure in retail, you know, software and a bunch of different things. And then software as us being consultants to clients in things from ag business to whatever, right? Um, I just don't see people being paid attention to to show them – how to become leaders, right? Um, they'll just be thrown into a position and then, you know, sink or swim kind of stuff. Um, some of it's neglect 
Some of it's fear. Some of it is ignorance, not knowing how, because that person who's asked somebody below them to step up a level, they themselves were never um, brought up. Well, I mean, in the leadership role. Right. Um, So that's my gripe. And it's it's. You know, it's not just big, huge corporations. It's, I think, kind of the culture across the board. Um, and I'm not a huge fan of unions. Uh, save that for a different rant. Um, but one thing that well-done unions have is that whole kind of guild thing, you know, um, apprentice, journeyman. So there's some notion, at least, of career progression. It may not be leadership, right, but at least it's a structure of – look, we're going to help you improve yourself. And then hopefully, you know, there might be a little leadership sprinkled in that. Right. So, so my, my problem in general with business is that they just don't pay attention uh, or care to take the time. We're too busy to, to improve. Um, and I'd like to ask you about your opinion about something that's come up on this podcast a bunch of times, which is, is um, someone with zero domain expertise, capable of being a great leader in IT specifically. Um, the, the sort of origin of this question for me came from an article about uh, Brian Williams um, uh, from NBC. And this there was a story, but I think it was, it had been bought, I, I'm totally blanking on who bought it, but some giant company bought NBC. Um, and, you know, the the way you got ahead was not by being good in the area that you were in charge of. And there was actually even, you know, there was an article in Vanity Fair about this when where someone was quoted saying that basically management had the view that you shouldn't have any domain specific expertise at all in order to be a leader of a division. Um, and while I can see that being, there being some truth or you could see the reasoning behind it, um, but at the same time, particularly with, you know, software and things like that, I've run into quite a few people who've said that, you know, there, you do have to know quite a bit about how the things actually run in order to be able to lead in that specific area. Um, I'll say yes and no, mostly no. Um, so I'm have been for like the last 10 or 15 years, pretty much specializing in test automation and testing. So, um, for example, when I'm working with somebody to test a web service, I have no idea how to build the code that will actually invoke or call that web service. What I do know is, um, I can go grab one of my teammates that knows that particular skill or technology very well. And then I will use my expertise in, well, what happens if we send this malformed thing? What happens if we don't authenticate? You know, here's how it's supposed to behave, does it? Um, so let's take that up a level then to the specific of leadership, right? Um, I don't think that you need the specifics of the technology in depth. I think what you need to be able to do is understand who on your team 
should be the experts in the various bits and pieces. Who's the database person? Um, who's the web services person? You know, I need them to work together with this third person who's going to grow to kind of be the bridge of all of that, right? Everybody should know a little bit about everything. Uh, you know, whether you want to call it T-shape, generalizing specialist, specializing generalist, whatever. Um, you as a leader don't have to be an expert. What you have to be awesome at is getting roadblocks out of the way of the team. You have to be an expert at um, getting those technical people, the software delivery people, to lose the grumpy developer attitude, the grumpy tester attitude, um, and actually talk to the business people, the suits or whomever. And you have to get the suits to lose the attitude of kind of, oh, well, we're just going to throw pizza under the door to these people, right? So leading a technical team, technical exposure always helps. Um, saying that someone shouldn't be a domain, shouldn't know the domain, have a hard time understanding kind of the mindset and the culture behind that. My initial reaction is that's bleeping stupid, but I don't know enough about that situation or kind of the, the bigger context there, right? Um, I think understanding the domain, be it technical or being it business, is really, really helpful, um, but is not critical. Uh, when I've led teams of testers and developers and other folks, you know, I'm viewing my role as What's causing you problems today? Where do you need information? What conversations can I facilitate? And am I making sure that you've got enough time to do your job well, plus learn while we're trying to do everything? Um, that leads me to my next question, actually. Um, uh, I think it's related to uh, what you say about imposter syndrome. Uh, <laughs> because once you let's say you've been working in an area and then you get, you get elevated to a, a leadership or management position. Um, yeah. Two things happen. One is that you are in a new area if you've never led anything before. Um, and you can feel like what, how, how do I know how to do this leadership thing? And at the same time, you start losing that on the ground knowledge because you're not doing the, the, you know, the, say the coding every day anymore. So you start, so you can get in this kind of like, you know, double imposter kind of thing going on. Um, and I was wondering what you, what you have to say to people who might, you know, have imposter syndrome themselves or might be concerned about what they would experience um, if they were, you know, promoted. Uh, so I saw a tweet from somebody and unfortunately I can't remember who it was. It pretty much sums up my feeling of uh, my own imposter syndrome. Uh, my <laughs> imposter syndrome isn't as good as anybody else's. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that, that fear is a very primal instinctive thing. I mean, that's core at who we are as humans. We want, you know, it, it, the vast majority, 99.99 all the way out as far as you want to go percent of humans want to do a good job, right? There are very few people that just don't want to work or are deeply angry and, you know, whatever. Most people want to do a good job, right? So you get comfortable. You get a level of competence build up, built up. That builds confidence. Um, 
you know, this, this is one of the things about the military. You start with small and they get you in the habit of success, right? So that means knowing what to do and learning to adapt. So you get confident, you get about your competence, and then you're thrown into a new area and all of your reference is gone, right? So if you're in an environment that's not supportive, meaning we know you're going to be over there and it's going to take you a little while, but it's going to be okay. Don't worry. You're a smart person, right? Valuing you as a person rather than your resume checklist. That's tough to deal with. All of your safety nets feel like they're gone. Um, And if it's just you, if it's not a supportive culture, then you've really got to take a step back and you've got to find somebody to help you sort of take that breath and say, it'll be okay. You know, look, Remember where you were two years ago. You felt the same way until you learned X, whatever X was. But you learned it, and you killed it. You kicked ass on X. Now I need you to do orangutan. (laughs) And you don't know orangutan, but look, you learned how to do X, so you learned to learn. Um, That's the heart. And and that's kind of part of tying back to that other question um, about organizations not doing well with grooming leaders, right? It's the same thing, right? I need you to do something new. And I understand this is totally unknown. But look, you figured this out. I'm asking you to do this. I don't know how to do this, but I'll help you figure it out with what you need. Um, That's not easy when it's you. Maybe you're at a new job. Maybe you got a new boss and maybe you're not sure of all of this cultural stuff, right? We don't do well at taking a step back and taking a breath and saying, I've been here before. I figured it out. It's going to suck. My stomach's going to hurt a while, but I'll get through it. Um, that's hard stuff to do if you don't have somebody somewhere who just says, I get it. You feel like you suck. You don't, but it'll be okay. Speaking of hard stuff to do, um, you write in your book about uh, giving bad news, um, and uh, and you, um, you you your advice is that you know as a good leader you should give bad news in person. And I was struck by the the particular examples you gave where you and other people learned about staffing decisions from PowerPoint presentations, like who was you know some uh-huh. one one you have one example of someone who learned about their own demotion in a PowerPoint presentation that I imagine was probably being presented to a group. Yeah. I mean, we've all Dilbert is a hit because Dilbert hits home to a lot of people. Right. Um, sadly, too many of us have been in those positions. Um, I was aghast both times that happened. And the first time it happened, um, the guy who was getting demoted and saw it there, uh, it, it, we weren't on great terms. We weren't on bad terms, right? We were just, we weren't all that close, but I'm like kind of turning in my chair and just looking at this concrete statue because he just, he, he had no clue how to react. Uh, I cannot imagine ever sharing that kind of news um, any way, but face to face. And I, I mean, that, that goes all the way back to how I was brought up as a kid, right? Just about treating 
other people as humans. Um, so when I when I hear about that stuff, when I read it, dear God, when I have to be in the middle of it, it's just it's appalling, appalling. Yeah, it's um, I've I've often wondered, you know, that what people are thinking when they're doing things like that. I mean, do they think that they're just being a hard ass and then this person is going to come back more motivated to try and work harder? Because I think that um, at least it's my opinion would be that, you know, there's more to it than just being hard ass when you're shaming someone. Um, and if they, for example, if that person, if, if you've just shamed them, you've actually introduced a whole new element to their work and their relationship with you. And the only, the only way anyone's going to stay in that situation is if they don't have a choice. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you have a choice, um, you should be getting a new employee rather <laughs> than, rather than continuing to work with one who has to live with this shame that you've personally heaped on them. So, you know, this is really interesting. Um, you've made me realize that I haven't really tried, and this is years later, right? This is probably 10 years later from both of those incidents or the, both of those examples. I don't know how far I ever went to try to unpack the motivation behind why those two particular situations happened. Um, sitting here, the second one that I know of, this guy was the vice president of a consulting company that I was at. And frankly, he was just a bully. He, he was a bully. He was well-liked by a core of people who were on his good boy list. Um, I didn't like the way he treated people, and I'd stand up to him because I just – I was driving several hours a day to and from for a commute, and I didn't need it. Um, so I was on neutral with him, but there were a lot of folks that that guy just flat bullied. Um, and I think this was part of this. The one guy – who saw his demotion on that particular example um, was not on his Santa's good list, right? The first one, I think that guy was just scared. He didn't know how to give hard news face to face. Um, so it was a fear thing, right? It was avoidance. And, um, you know, both of those are very core things, right? Bullying is kind of a, it's just, it, it's, core and intrinsic to somebody right and fear i mean that's that goes back to us as monkeys right um okay so i don't want to have to see this guy and i'm just going to put this on the slide and i'm going to be you know he's going to be behind me and i'm not going to have to look him in the eye right and that's how i'll break the news yeah when you're talking about bullying and motivation that reminds me i've got this sort of you know pub table conversation piece where i say you know it's interesting that one of the interesting things about the discourse around um, illegal drugs is that you're not allowed to talk about the pleasure. Um, that is the motivation and, you know, what brings the people back for... to at least gets you, gets you going in the first place. Right. Um, and we're just not allowed. There's some very deep cultural reasons about why we're sort of not allowed to talk about the pleasure. Um, and when it comes to causing harm to other people, um, it's also against convention to talk about pleasure. And so what we'll talk about is the bullying victims suffering, uh, but it's somehow impolite to talk about the bully himself doing it for pleasure. 
And you know, yeah, absolutely, we, we can we unless and I I really believe that like unless with all the discourse around bullying that's developed in the last few years, you know, unless and until where we find an ability to talk about the fact that people who bully are sometimes not all the time and not all of them are people who enjoy causing harm to other people and they well, anticipate it and they go home and they're like that kid's crying in his room right now and I did that to them and then they take you know a sip of their their energy drink and they just you know sit there contemplating and enjoying the thoughts that they're having about what that other person is experiencing after what they've done to them. Um, you know, you run, you run into this in everything you do. You know, why are people motivated to do things? That's part of being a leader too, right? I mean, you're going to run into spots where there are bullies on your team, right? So, you know, are they bullying out of fear because they're worried about their position going away because the process is changing? Are they bullying because it fulfills a need for power? Because even behind that, you know, you talk about that pleasure, you're spot on, right? They People do that for a reason. Oh, well, it makes me feel good. Why does it make you feel good? Oh, well, because I'm scared because I'm actually not very good at X, Y, or Z. They're being good. And if I talk them down, I feel better. And then people aren't going to look at my own inadequacies. Um, it, you're right. We don't – we'll address the action but not the cause. And you know, as a leader, as somebody who wants to learn to be a leader, you've got to learn to take those steps about, man, I'm pissed off because that person's a bully. Well, that's fine. Get pissed off. Why? You know? Another, Why are they? Yeah, and another. You're reminding me. Another subtle challenge to leadership is um, what you might call passive aggressiveness, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. So, for example, um, and these these things are like inherently tricky, which is why they're they're worth discussing. Um, but you know, sometimes people can claim that they've been poorly treated when they haven't been poorly treated. And this is another, this is another type of problem that's very hard to discuss because if you're a manager and someone's claiming this, then you have to keep in mind what other people will perceive based on your response. And so, for example, you don't want people who are actually being poorly treated to be concerned that they won't be genuinely listened to and that, but at the same time, you know, and it's, it, this is just a very, very hard, hard problem. It, it, well, you know, I think it's exactly this kind of stuff that people who are great technical leaders, you know, the, the go-to troubleshooter, the person who knows all of the frameworks, the person who pairs and who mentors um, people in the team room does not want to step up to actually run the team, right? So when you talk with those types of people that are brilliant, that, that are inspiring even, it's like, man, I'd love to have you like take another step up and spread these beautiful hugs all over the place. They're like, man, I don't want to deal with the drama. 
And what's that drama? That drama is that crappy side of all of us as humans where I'm a snowflake. I'm special, right? Um, and you need to treat me this way. No, I'll talk to you a certain way, but I need the same outcomes because we need to have you know, fair and equal treatment across the whole team. I'll speak to you and we'll have our communication that might be different, right? But the actions and results – I can't have you doing something else when I ex- have these other expectations over everybody else because that's the norm, right? I value your diversity. I value your difference of opinion. You're contributing, but, you know, I'm sorry. You can't come in at 3 in the afternoon and go home at 5 in the – you know? Um, yeah, I know. That's, I know what you mean. that's the kind of stuff those brilliant, awesome technical people don't want to have to deal with, Right. And people will leave organizations to avoid being put into those kinds of roles that they don't want to. Um, the last question that I uh, always selfishly ask on these in these interviews of Lean Pub authors is, and uh, sometimes people don't don't have an answer right at the time, and will might email me later. But um, if there were one thing on Lean Pub that we could build for you, or one thing that we could fix for you as an author. What would that one thing be? Hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I've done two books for myself on Lean Pub, um, and I've done the just kind of the Markdown Git push flow. That's worked really well. I'm helping a fellow here in the Rogue Valley. That's part of Oregon who has an amazing life story. He was thrown in prison for a while on a false accusation, uh, lost his family, lost his job, lost his reputation, lost his life. Um, He's got this amazing story that he started writing in prison. Um, This guy is challenged by trying to turn on a computer. And I don't have a specific feature, but what is hard for him. And the reason that I'm doing stuff is he wrote everything in word, but trying the word processing flow, um, doesn't have as much flexibility or ease of use for somebody like him, meaning, you know, like how can I version, um, and, you know, there may be bits and pieces of that, right? Part of that is I've been over in the Git and the Markdown context, and I've I've had to do some other things over here. But, um, you know, outside of the hardcore technical domain, there are people with extraordinary stories in the world. And it's the grandma and grandpa types who just don't – I mean, this guy wasn't even sure how to send me the file as an attachment, so how can we serve the, I mean, this guy's story, if Oprah was still around, this would be worthy of book of the month, right? How can we get those people with amazing stories, just this easy flow that doesn't get them confused and scared? Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for that uh, response. That's um, really good and gets to the heart of, you know, um, a, a lot of the problems that we do, we do try to address. Um, we do have something called a visual editor now. I don't know if you've, you've come across that. Um, it, it's writing in the browser. Um, oh, okay. And, and so, you know, you just, you know, 
you highlight some text and you can make it italic. Um, uh, you click a plus sign to make a new chapter. Um, it really, that really couldn't get a lot simpler. I mean, how people are introduced to it and stuff like that, you know, you okay. can always work on that. But, but for someone like this, I think that would actually be very good. The complication that we've run into with authors many times is if they come to us with a big word document. <laughs> and, and, and now if that word document, if they haven't done much formatting, like if all they've got is like chapters and then paragraphs with words in them, uh, you can, you could actually like probably just more or less cut and paste that into our visual editor or even into a plain text document. Right. Uh, and, and you'd be fine. It's, but if people have done a lot of formatting and one of the real problems with word, and it is just, it's so unfortunate that people think they have to use word. And that because one of the yeah. big problems is that I think I forget who I was talking to, but like, you know, it's kind of like you need to cross a river and someone gives you an aircraft carrier. Yeah. And then they're like, well, before we get going, you know, we've got a dedicated satellite that we need to make sure we uplink to. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't I just want to get across the river like I could probably do that in a canoe but instead everybody thinks they need this thing which, which has like, you know, I mean, well, I don't know why, but like I always bring up the example of mail merge, like yeah. Microsoft word has built in there. The idea that you're using this to create letters that are going, and you're going to print the address and the name on the letter. Uh, but we, you're going to have a set of names and you're going to set up a template and like, and then they're using that same tool to write a novel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, like, you know, I mean, it's 2017. And if you've got a Microsoft word document, that's just words. That's more than 20 pages long. You're going to get that stupid beach ball, uh, all the time. Uh, and, and, you know, even if you're writing something that's very simple, just words, that's hundreds of pages long, you have to, you have to split it up into multiple files. And so it's, un it's, it's, it's weird because there's this sort of paradox, sorry to go on about this, but there's this sort of paradox nice. where people, think they're not technical, but they can write in word, you know? And it's like, yeah. if you, if you can do that, oh my God, you know, I think about, I think about people who are like, oh no, computers. And it's like, well, you have no problem getting into a car and turning it on and then driving like 60 miles an hour, right. you know, in this complicated, right. as the pilot of this machine. Yeah. Um, but you know, anyway, that's just a long way around of saying that like, to anyone listening who's using Word, you're already a technical person. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, if you are thinking of using LeanPub, if you've got a long book in Word, um, you can try various approaches. But probably what you're going to want to do is is find some tool. To t if you want to use LeanPub, you're going to probably want to find a tool to turn your book into a PDF, an EPUB and Mobi, and then upload those to LeanPub. And that way you can use all of our, you know, you know, lean publishing features and get our 90% minus 50 cent royalty rate per sale and all that kind of goodness. Uh, but if you've all, again, if you've already got a long, heavily formatted word document, um, uh, yeah, you probably don't want to try converting it to markdown. Right. Right. Which is what I did. The guy had, um, a modest amount. Um, and I was able to, you know, moderately technical myself. So I wrote some macros, put it over in text editor, did some, you know, Reg edicts, reg edict, uh, foo. Um, but you know, as big of a problem as word can be, it's on almost everybody's computer. 
And man, when somebody wants to tell a story and they finally get motivated, if they're getting going in, in word, at least they're getting their story down. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah. Um, that being said, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say we do. I should I should I would be remiss if I didn't mention we actually do have a word workflow um, right. where you can use Dropbox and you can write in. You just like you have your you wherever you save word files now when you're writing, you would just save them in the shared Dropbox folder and you can actually write and uh, lean pub book that way. Um, but you want to you would probably want to do that when you're starting a new book or story rather than when you've already written a ton. Yeah, yeah, because like I said, the formatting is a big challenge because all of Word's formatting stuff, especially when you get into anything past just very basic, it's just complex and it's specific to Word and, you know, that's okay, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I I remember having just in the very in the weeds, but one time we had an author come to us with uh, with a book and there was this one problem that I just fixated on because I wanted to I wanted to know what was wrong. And what had happened was when you create a table of contents in Word using their table of contents feature, it actually there's whoever did it was under pressure or lazy, but they got away with hacking the bookmarks feature in Word to make the table of contents work. Interesting. So what happened was a person would create a table of contents. Um, and then that would create all kinds of gobbledygook when you tried to run it through LeanPub's uh, book generators. Because what we do is if you if you have a heading, a chapter heading formatted as a heading one from our template, then we just automatically create a table of contents for you in your book in all these different right. formats. But so this guy, so I, I took his manuscript and I deleted the table of contents. But there were all these like kind of ghosts showing up after our book generators had gone through it. And what had happened was... Not only were these bookmarks there still, even if you, for each chapter, even if you deleted the table of contents, the hack was they hid the bookmark. They were, there's such a thing as hidden bookmarks in Word. And so whoever built the table of contents feature in Word did this ridiculous shortcut that then sort of infects the Word file with something you might not, like you might not even know about bookmarks, let alone hidden bookmarks. Um, and then to delete them, you have to delete them all one by one. Um, anyway, this is just an example of like, you know, word, word has a lot of pitfalls and, you know, minefields in it. Right. Right. Um, it's great for basic stuff. It's great for starting point, like you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you guys have such great tool flow in, in lean pub that, um, it's worth moving over to something else very shortly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks on that, on that uh, positive note. Thanks for the kind words, Jim. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, thanks for telling us about your experience. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for being a lean pub author. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And thanks for such great service. I've, it's been great. Thanks.